My wife has uh, uh, taught me uh, through years of ministry uh, by allowing me to teach her preschool class every once in a while, and it was a way for me to learn that uh, that is an incredible <laughs> ministry. It takes a lot of energy, and uh, I learned to appreciate children's workers a lot. And uh, so, First Peter chapter 2. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be looking at that this morning. Uh, if you're wondering why in the world I'm preaching today and Nick is not, uh, and you're wondering where he's at, uh, we swapped today. He's down at one of the churches that we planted as a conference of churches uh, in the Northwest. We planted a brand new church down in Hillsboro, Oregon. Uh, Pastors Bobby Gaither, just a great uh, ministry that's happening there. And so um, I've been going down there a fair amount just to encourage them and, and be with them. And so we decided today uh, it would be better for Nick to go down there and preach for Bobby to give him a break and just encourage the people. And, uh, and so I took his place here. So that's why I'm here and not Nick. So you can be praying for God to uh, just use Nick and Stephanie and their family to be an encouragement down in Oregon uh, this morning as well. Let's stand as we read God's word. And we stand because it's, it's not our words, but it's God's words. And so we want to honor God and the authority of his word. And so let's uh, read these words. So 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1 and go to verse 12. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense." They stumble because they disobey the word, as indeed, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his glorious light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you would not received mercy, but now you have re- received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father, may these words by the power of your Spirit come off of these pages. May they convict us. May they strengthen us. May they, may they do exactly what Peter, when he wrote these words, this letter to these Christians throughout Asia, may, may they accomplish what he intended for them to accomplish in the lives of those who receive this letter, that it would be an encouragement to us, that in whatever we face, in whatever challenges or trials or persecutions, that we might be encouraged in the faith, that we might be reminded of who we are in Christ. And so, God, would you strengthen us through these words today? Would you give me strength to be able to proclaim them clearly as they are here? And so, thank you, God, for this great privilege. Thank you for your word breathed out by you through the power of your spirit, God. And may they breathe life into us 
today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, the passage uh, we're looking at today is, is in essence, a, a passage, uh, a, a letter that has been written to Christians throughout Asia who were going through difficulties, and I'll explain those in a moment. Um, and, but this, uh, this letter was written to encourage them. It was written, in, in essence, to help them trust God, to trust in God's promises, to, to trust in those promises, especially in light of all the lies and all the challenges, all the things that come at us that are seeking to allure us away from Christ, as, as Pastor Nick has been talking about the last several weeks. And so, so today's passage was written, in essence, what Nick talked about last week, it is written to just such Christians who were going through very, very difficult uh, situation uh, in their day. Now, just to, just to give you a little big picture structure, so the, the slide that you're going to see uh, tells us that this is basically what is called in the Bible a chiastic structure. Now, everybody knows what that is, right? <laughs> a chiastic structure. Um, that word doesn't mean anything, but it's important for this. It's the, it's the way the passage is written, and it actually helps us understand what Peter's trying to get at. And all the, all the chiasm means is that basically the, the verses 1 and 2 correlate with verses 11 and 12. So it's like a V. It's like a V. Like a V. There we go. And so verses 1 and 2 are the same as 11 and 12. They're an exhortation. An exhortation means to encourage the church to do something and to not do something. And then secondly, it moves in and, and it's telling us that who we are. So it's our identity. So verses 3 and 4 correlate with verses 9 and 10. Uh, if that makes sense. And then the middle section, in a chiastic structure, the middle part of the section is the point of the whole thing. So it really helps us when we understand that, the, that there's this little chiastic thing going on. It helps us know what the point is because Paul or Peter is showing us that the point in verses 6 through 8 is Jesus. Everything hinges on Christ. In fact, that's true for your life and for my life here this morning. Everything in your life hinges on what you will do with Jesus. Everything. And what Peter is going to say to these Christians is he's showing them that there are two kingdoms. There's God's kingdom and there's the kingdom of this world. And we're in one or the other. You're either in God's kingdom or you're in the kingdom of this world. There's a kingdom that is in darkness and there's a kingdom of light we're going to see in this passage. So there's two kingdoms. He's telling us there are two types of people. There are people who believe in Christ on the one hand, and there are people who reject Christ on the other hand. There there are, in essence, two ways to live, Peter's saying, and encouraging these Christians. So there's two kingdoms, there's two people, there's two ways that you can live. You can live in obedience to Christ or live in disobedience to Christ. And as a result of that, there's two different results that come along with it. He says here in this middle section that for those who believe in Christ, there is honor. There is a blessing that comes with that. There's honor. For those who reject Christ, there is shame on that that day in which we will stand before God in judgment. For those who believe in Christ, there's blessings. For those who do not believe in Christ, there is judgment one day for rejecting the very precious and valuable uh, word which is Christ. And so he's showing us these two ways to live, these two kingdoms, two people, two ways to live, two results to two outcomes that are going to become of this, and all of it hinges on Christ. All of it. That's the whole center section. And Peter 
is going to remind these Christians, these are Christians he's writing to, he's going to remind them of who they are as a means of encouraging them in the face of challenges. Um, So what was the challenge they were facing? In the early church, there was no widespread persecution. We often think that that was the case. But really, the only persecution, and by persecution, we're not just meaning suffering in general, but, we're meaning, but what we mean by that is that there were, there was, people were suffering because they believed in Jesus. They were, they were suffering death and ridicule and being cast out of their communities and societies. That's what we mean. And they were being, that, all that being done to them because they were Christians, because they believed in Jesus. And so in the early church, this was not widespread. There were no uh, states, meaning like Rome. Rome was not persecuting Christians. The only persecution from Christians, if you read the book of Acts, were from the Jews, the Jews were constantly following the disciples around, trying to cause trouble for them. If you see the Apostle Paul, uh, he's constantly being followed around from town to town. They stir up a riot, and they get Paul put on trial and his disciples. That's the persecution. But in about 64 AD, some of you historians will know this, in 64 AD, during the the rule of Nero, uh, Nero, who, this is the... This is what is believed anyway by some of the Roman uh, historians of that day. Nero, was a, was, he wanted to build. He had a, a love to build new stuff. He wanted to build things bigger and better. Uh, and so in 64 AD, Rome burnt. About 70% of Rome burnt to the ground. And the belief amongst the people, the Roman citizens, was that Nero was the one who did it himself. That he was the one who, he set it on fire so he could burn down what was there so he could rebuild it, right? And so in a moment, in this, this massive fire that took place in history, these, the Roman citizens were furious at him. I mean, they were, their culture, their lives, everything was put in jeopardy because of Nero, and they were angry. So Nero, according to Roman historians, a one named Tacitus, if you want to go look it up, Tacitus writes about this, and Nero devised a scheme, a plan. He was trying to get himself off the hot seat. And so Nero decides there's this little sect of people that, that nobody really likes anyway, called Christians. This is literally what Tacitus, the Roman historian, says. There was this little group of people called Christians. Nobody really likes them. So Nero devises a plan to blame it on the Christians. And so in a moment where there was no persecution by the state, by by Rome, in a moment the people turned on the Christians. And they began to, Christians became in an instant the target of incredible persecution. They were cast out of their jobs. They were cast out of their communities. What they once, they, in the places in which they once lived and they had a place there, just like you have a place in your communities, all of a sudden, all their neighbors absolutely hated them and were against them. And all the fury and anger they had towards Nero, they turned on these Christians. And they were instantly outcasts. And not only were they outcasts, but they turned on them in fury and they began to kill them. They, they would put meat or hides from animals on them and turn them into the arena and turn packs of dogs on them to eat them and kill them for sport. 
They began to burn them alive at the stake as a means of lighting up the streets at night. It was, it was brutal. And up to that point, one of the most brutal moments for the church. And so these Christians are facing horrible and terrible things. Not, not just being outcasts and being ridiculed and losing their jobs and their livelihoods, but they were losing their lives. And so you can imagine there was a lot of discouragement, a lot of fear, and a lot of temptation because with persecution and suffering and trials comes temptation to forget who we are. We are tempted to forget who, who God has made us to be and we're tempted to turn away from it all, right? I don't know about your times of suffering, but my times of suffering that's nothing like what they were going through. I am tempted as well to forget, to lose sight. That's the temptation. And so Peter is writing these words to hold up Christ and to remind them, church, don't lose heart. Remember who you are. Remember what God has done. Remember that you live in this reality that there's two kingdoms. There's a kingdom of darkness that does its dark deeds and there's a kingdom of light. And you, church, are the ones who are in the light. And so, so Peter is writing to them to encourage them in the midst of this suffering. And this is where our little structure to our passage, which is going to land where we began with Christ. That's where we're going to end up, back in the center section. But let's pan out, and let me just show you, uh, while walking through this passage, what Peter is going to say to them. This is, shows us, this is what he's going to say to them to encourage them, and hopefully encourage you this morning as well, uh, in your faith, in the midst of whatever things might be coming your way. He begins in verse 1. This is the first part. So we're going we're gonna to work our way from the, the ends and we're going to work our way to the middle. So the first exhortation in verses 1 and 2, and then we'll look at 11 and 12, which parallels. He says, so put away all malice, all deceit, uh, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. So in other words, these persecuted Christians, he comes to them and he says, put away, or don't do this, set this aside, fight against the temptation to become malicious, to become hypocrites, to become slanderers, to become envious, to become deceitful. So he's saying, don't be malicious. To to do malice means to have an intent to do evil. In other words, in fact, all of these little descriptions, these words, malice and hypocrisy and envy and deceit and slander, he's saying, don't be like the world around you. As a Christian, you and I should act differently than the world. In fact, Peter's even going to say after this in chapter 3, he's going to say, when you're persecuted or when people curse you, he says, bless them in return. I don't know about you, but I need the Spirit of God to do that because I cannot do that naturally. I want to punch people in the face. Right? I'm just being honest, right? When someone curses you, unjustly treats you, what do you naturally want to do? You want to punch them back. When people are malicious towards you, when they slander you, meaning they tear down your character by using false accusations, what do you want to do? Do you want to bless them? You want to pray for them? No, you don't. But Peter's saying, church, this, all these Christians who are facing the worst of the worst in their culture, he's saying, don't you be like the world out there. Don't respond to them in the same way that they're treating you. Don't do it. Don't do that. Instead, he says, instead, so on the other side of it, verse 2, he says, instead, be like a newborn infant. And this is a, see the opposite comparison here? We got slander and envy and we got 
hypocrisy, people claiming to be one thing and yet doing another thing. We have, we have malicious intent, all these kinds of things. He says, but you, church, don't be like that. You instead be like a newborn infant who longs for the pure spiritual milk. Isn't that incredible? Now, Paul uses the same infant um, picture in his letters, but he uses it in a negative sense. He, he says to the Christians, Paul uses this, this picture of an infant to say, don't, don't stop being a child, it's time to grow up, kind of work, right? But that's not what Peter's saying here. So if you've read Paul and you're thinking, oh, this is what he's saying, we've got to grow up. No, no, no. He's, he's not talking about that. So he's saying we should constantly always be like an infant in that we should long for milk, for the pure spiritual milk. You know, some of you have babies here or you've had babies, you know how much a child longs for milk, right? A child will do whatever it takes at any time of day or night uh, to get milk, right? Because they're hungry. They long for it. They need it. And so they scream bloody murder, right? Until you, they get it. He's saying, be like that when it comes to the pure spiritual milk. And he's referring here to God's word. Have a longing. So don't, don't be like the world in all these ways. Instead, be like an infant and long for the pure spiritual milk so that, not that you grow out of it. In this case, he's saying, so that you will grow deeper into it into salvation, that you'll grow up into this word, not away from it, understanding more and more what God has done for you, in other words, drink deeply of it, and in fact, he even talks about, he says, he gives a warning in verse three, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, if indeed you have tasted, notice how it's not just about your head knowledge of what you know about God, but the Christian life is about is about actually experiencing him in your life, knowing him in your heart, like, like being able to taste it. This is why he's saying, he's, he's warning and saying, he's saying if, if you don't long for pure spiritual milk, if you don't have a longing for the word, maybe you haven't tasted deeply of just how good God is. Maybe you just don't know. Maybe, maybe up here you see, I believe that there's a God, but the Spirit of God hasn't worked it down into your life to go, I've experienced his goodness. I know it. As much as I can taste the, the steak that I love, right? As much as I can taste that, I, I have a, a, a knowledge. Of, I, don't, I don't just sit back in my house and go, man, steak's pretty cool. You know, it's, uh, you know give the scientific definitions and look at it and ex- evaluate it. No, I, I, I grill it up and then I savor it, right? I experience its goodness. I, I, in, I enjoy it. Like I feel it, Right? And uh, that, that, that's what he's saying here. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Look at verse 11. He goes down to verse 11 and, gives us an, and ends this whole thing with another exhortation. It says, Beloved, I urge you. So in light of Christ again, who's the center of this, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. In other words, he's saying, uh, we, th- this is a theme throughout the Bible, in fact. The, the God's people are constantly out of place wherever they are. We are not in our, this is not our home. We're always feeling out of place. And in fact, if you feel like you're at home here, then maybe something's wrong. He's saying, we don't think like the culture around us. They think about being slanderous and envy. They think when they're punched, we punch back. Right? He said, we, we think differently. We act differently. We, we have different appetites we, when it comes to spiritual things. And he's saying, he's saying here, we are exiles. We, if you feel out of place, Good. Because you are out of place. We live in a different kingdom. 
God's kingdom is not of this world, right? This is what Jesus said even when they were going to come and take him by force. And he says, my kingdom's not of this world. You couldn't even come and take it if you wanted to. And so he's, he's encouraging them by saying, hey, you are a sojourner. You're in exile. You live in a foreign place that speaks a different language than you. And so if you feel really strange, it's okay. It's all right. So it's why we need each other, right? It's why we encourage one another. And then he says, so as exiles, as those who don't belong here but are called to live here and to proclaim and show the glory of God, he says, as exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. There is a war going on. There is a war being waged for your soul. There is, uh, Pastor Nick talked last week about the pull of the world constantly trying to pull you back into darkness. You are in the kingdom of light if you are in Christ. But there is a constant tug, is there not? A constant pull in your life through every single facet of this world to constantly pull you back into the darkness. To get you to believe lies, to believe things that are not true, to get you believe, to believe that you're defeated, to get you to believe that you, that, that you have no spiritual inheritance, to get you to believe that your God is not a God who saves and works mightily. And so these things are waging war against your soul. You, you in particular, in your own life, you could name right now the, the way in which the enemy of your soul is working on you particularly to pull you back into darkness every day. There are particular things. The enemy has quite the strategies. None are the same. He works on us in ways that he knows will get at us. He prowls around, Peter says later, like a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour. He's always working to pull you from darkness or from light back into darkness. These things are waging war against your soul. So what does Peter say to them? He exhorts them, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and they may glorify God on the day of his visitation. Now I think... I think what he means by that, in the one hand, is what is meant in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, you know, let your light so shine among men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And in that sense, it'll bring glory to him, and it may even draw people that are in darkness into light to go, there's something enticing about that. The Spirit of God is working through your life, not just what you say, but it's working through how you live your life, how you love, how you care, as, as Rich was talking about. And so he's saying here, but not only that, he says they may see your good deeds and glorify God, but he adds this twist. On the day of visitation, meaning on the day of judgment. Now I think what he means by that is that hopefully your life lived in an honorable way, not like not in the passions of the, the flesh as he's talking about here, the, pulling you away, into, but your life lived honorably will actually draw people to know Christ and to cherish Christ and to treasure Christ the way you do so that on that day, they will glorify God for what he has done in their life. But either way, God will get glory because even if they should reject and turn away as we're going to see, turn Christ away, he will still get glory. Because on the day of judgment, he'll be seen as judging rightly. 
he will be seen as a just judge in light of his gracious and glorious offer of salvation and to those who reject it. They will be seen as evil as they really are and he will be seen as good and gracious as he really is. Now, on the one hand, if we just stopped right there, it might feel a little weird. And maybe you hadn't thought about this, but I thought about this. I was thinking, if, if, if I'm talking to people who are going through really tough things, is it really the best way to start by saying, now, you need to live this way. You need to straighten up, right? I mean, if you were going through a really tough day right now, and I sat down with you and you, you, you spilled your guts and said all this stuff was going on, I said, hey, here's what you need to do. You need to put away, put away those bad thoughts in your head right now. Uh, stop slandering. Stop being envious, you know. Uh, you need to abstain from those passions of your flesh. You're, 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 you're right? Is that very encouraging in some ways, right? That alone probably wouldn't be all that encouraging. You'd be going, well, well, duh. You know, like, this is why I'm sitting here talking to you, right? Um, and, and so it wouldn't necessarily by itself be an encouragement to suffering Christians simply to tell them, hey, here's what you should be doing and should not be doing. That wouldn't be it. But, but Peter doesn't just leave those exhortations hanging. What he's saying in verses 4 and 5 and 9 and 10 is he's saying to them that the reason why he can say that to persecuted Christians who are suffering greatly is he can say that because he's, it, their behavior that he's calling them to, to live honorably, to not be malicious and envious and hip- hypocritical, this behavior that he's calling them to, to not do and to do, is rooted in who they are. He's saying the reason why the reason why you shouldn't be these things and you should long for pure spiritual milk, the reason why you should abstain from these things and yet you should, you should uh, I'm going to forget it here, you should keep your conduct honorable is because it's who you are. It's who God has made you to be. It's, it's rooted in their identity as being in Christ. And so he, he goes on in verse 4, for instance, he says, as you come to him, as you come to him, which is a, he's not talking here about being saved, like coming to Christ in that sense. He's talking about it in a John 15 sense. If you go read John 15 this afternoon, it talks about abiding in Christ, a continual coming. We constantly, as Christians, are coming to Jesus. We're constantly looking to him. And so Peter's saying to them, as you come, so, so think about these, these exhortations. He says, and as you come to him, a living stone. He's talking here about Jesus. Jesus is a living stone. This, this word living actually comes up several times in the book of 1 Peter where he refers in verse 1, verse 1 verse 3 to a living hope that we are born again, that is given a new nature, to a living hope that is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, in 1 verse 23, he says that we are born again through the living and abiding word of God. And then now here, he refers to Jesus as a living stone. There's this, I think there's something significant to that idea of living, that it's alive, that our faith is active, it's living. And he says that Jesus is a living stone. And we find out here in a moment, not just any stone, but he's the cornerstone. 
And the cornerstone, amen indeed, right? The, the cornerstone is that one stone that's the very first stone that is placed in the building of a building. It's the biggest, it's the most sturdy, and it's the most crucial. That if the cornerstone is not right, then the whole building could crumble. And it's the stone upon which the whole building is built up on. And so he's saying here that Jesus is, is, is a living stone, but listen to what it says. He's been rejected by men. He's rejected by men. People reject him, even to this day. Maybe even some of you sitting here this morning, maybe your heart, your own heart, is hard towards Christ. He is a living stone that has been rejected by men constantly, daily, regularly. People turn away and they reject this gift of life that Jesus offers. And yet, what does it say from God's perspective? That's from men's perspective. But in the sight of God, Jesus is chosen. He's precious. I can hear at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. This is my son. From the father speaking to the son. This is my son whom I love and in whom I am well pleased. Now that's an important thing. For us to hear God say that about his son, even though he's rejected by men. Because what we're finding here, what we're going to see here is that these people that are getting this letter, they too have been rejected by the culture around them, right? And what Peter's encouraging them with is to go, look, look, just as Jesus was rejected by men, outcasts, so you have been rejected as well, or persecuted, but God's perspective of you because of Christ Chosen, precious in his sight, in Christ. So he says to, uh, to them, Jesus is a living stone rejected by men, in the, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And then he turns to them and says, you yourselves, you yourselves are like living stones. And you're being built up as a spiritual house. That may not land on us the same way it probably landed on that original audience, but think about this. Um, when we feel defeated, discouraged, when we, we're tempted to believe the lies of Satan, we, we don't often see ourselves as a spiritual house. I, I thought about my, where I grew up in the Midwest. You can drive down the highways in the Midwest, and it's littered with old farm places, and they got these massive barns that you can just imagine in your mind, there was a day when that barn was incredibly useful. It was alive with livestock and people. It was a booming place, a productive place. And yet now, that massive barn has holes in the roof. The, the walls are falling down. The, 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 it's caving in. And I think sometimes as Christians, we actually see ourselves more as this broken down kind of barn and yet, Peter's, that, that's a little bit of what they're probably struggling with, discouragement, dis struggling to understand who they are. And so Peter's coming along saying, no, Jesus is a living stone, and you are like living stones. You are being built upon the foundation, the cornerstone, into a spiritual house, sturdy and firm. That's who you are. Don't, don't believe it. You're not a shack, a torn down barn. You are a spiritual house in which you are called to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. 
And then in verse 9, he continues on. He says, but you are, here it is, a chosen race. That means that God, just think about this, the God of the universe, the sovereign creator and ruler of all things who has created all things by his power, including your life, who knows exactly what your life is for, that God who is holy and perfect has placed his favor upon you. Think about that this morning. That the creator of all things, the ruler of all things, has put his favor on you. He has looked to you intentionally with favor and blessing. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. All of these terms actually are found in the Old Testament. He's drawing upon Old Testament imagery of the way God described his people in the Old Testament. And what he's doing now is he's applying those same terms to his church. And he's saying now the f- these things are fulfilled. They're full, right? In the Old Testament, there was one, little, one small nation, a people of God, and now in the f- fullness, in the, in the fullness of Christ who fulfilled all of these promises, now it is huge. There's a huge family. And he's referring to us in the same way that, that the people of God have been expanded upon, are full. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And why has he made us that way? It's what Rich was talking about earlier that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is why it's important for you and I to taste that the Lord is good. I don't know about you, but I, don't, I have a tough time standing in front of people and talking with some kind of conviction about something I don't really believe in. Right? But if I believe it, then I will plead with you all day, right? And I'll plead with you with conviction and tears and I will passionately tell you these things because I believe these things. And so for those of us who've tasted that God is good, we truly know and savor and treasure Christ. He says he's made us into this holy nation. He's made us a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a people for his own possession so that we would proclaim this. So that we would declare to everyone around, we would declare this good news. We would proclaim the excellencies, I like that, the excellencies of Him, Christ, who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. He's called us from one kingdom to another. And then He says this, verse 10, and I want to encourage you with this this morning. I think this is a bit of a reminder. He says, once you were not a people. There was a time in which you were an orphan without a family. Paul would say this in Colossians and say, we were lost without hope in the world without Christ. He's saying there was a time, in verse 10, that you were not a people, but now you are a people. You were not in a family, but now you have a family. 
He says, there was a time in which you were not shown mercy, but now you have been shown mercy. And what he's referring to clearly is that for every single one of us, there's no, no difference at all. Romans tells us that all of us have sinned. All of us fall short of the glory of God. None of us measure up to God. Ephesians tells us that as sinners who stand opposed to God in our sinfulness, as sinners, the very wrath of God is upon us. It's not a pretty sight, is it? It's not a pretty thought this morning to consider that outside of Jesus Christ, that God's wrath is actually aimed at us. Paul says you, we were by nature, not just because of what we did, but it's our very nature. We were by nature an object of God's wrath. That means that God's wrath, because of who we are as sinful, rebellious people against God, as one author put it, hell-bound haters of God, we were by nature an object of God's wrath. It was aimed at us. When you consider how serious that is and how significant that is, and then you read where he says, once you had not received mercy, in other words, the wrath of God was upon you, but now, now, in light of Christ, now you have received mercy. Now you have, the, the mercy is often a, it comes in conjunction with salvation. You have been rescued. And in just a moment, we're going to take communion, which is going to be a reminder that Jesus died on the cross in our place, in his body, and the very wrath of God that was aimed at you and I was placed upon Jesus. And he died in our place, absorbing in his body the wrath that we deserved. And so he's saying, once you did, not, you did not receive mercy, once you were not a people, but now, now, God has not only rescued you, he has brought you into a big family. He's made you a people of his own possession, where he's the father, a good father. And you're in his family. There was a day in which you had not received mercy, but now in Christ you have received mercy. And all of this is because of Christ. All of it. Verses 6 through 8. He roots, the exhortation that he gives is rooted in our identity of who we are in Christ. And who we are in Christ is rooted in verses 6 through 8 in who Christ is as the cornerstone. He says, for, as, for it stands in Scripture, that for there is a way of showing us this is a foundational statement. Everything, everything rests on this. He's saying all these things, and he says, now, for, for it stands in Scripture. And this is not just a new idea to Peter. He's actually going to quote Isaiah 28, Isaiah 8, Psalm 118, and he's going to show that this is, this is who Christ was always, this is who he's always been, and now he's come. He says, for it stands in Scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, precious and chosen. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What does that shame refer to? It refers to the day in which one day you will stand before God in judgment. And on that day, for those who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, for those who have believed in Christ, you will not be put to shame on that day. God will not hold your sins against you. He won't count them against you. And the reason why? 
because they've been counted against Christ. Christ has already paid for your sins. And so on that day, you will not be put to shame. You will, in fact, not be like those in Psalm chapter 1 where it says the wicked on that day will not be able to stand in judgment. You will stand in judgment. Not because you're so great, but because your Savior Jesus is is marvelous and perfect and holy. And because of Him, we will stand in Him and we will not be put to shame. Think of how these persecuted Christians are receiving this, right? How they're hearing this encouragement. And then listen, listen to what he says in verse seven. The blessing says, so, here's a conclusion statement. So, the honor belongs to you. Can I say something that, I don't know, I hope this doesn't get me in trouble, but we talk a lot in our culture right now about privilege, don't we? Let me, let me share something with all of us here in this room who love Jesus and say, in every sense of that word, we can truly say of all of us, regardless of skin color, regardless of where you came from or where you've been, in Christ, we are truly, in every sense of the word, the most privileged people on the face of the earth. Are we not? The honor belongs to you, every one of you, who know Jesus Christ. You are honored because of that. Doesn't that, that seem counterintuitive? That seems like a little backwards, right? We talk about honoring God, right? And yet, in Christ, you are honored ones. You are privileged beyond what you could even imagine in terms of that definition. To those who believe the honors for you. Not because you're great, but because of Christ. But he says, for those who do not believe, it's the opposite. For those who do not believe, he says, that same stone that for you became a a cornerstone, a a stone that, that is the foundation upon which everything in life is built, the firmness, the sturdiness of your life, that same stone for those who reject Christ becomes a stone of stumbling. It becomes a rock of offense. That the same Jesus that you may love here this morning, others are stumbling over that Jesus. And that same Jesus is a rock of offense. Um, I think we can see this in our culture quite clearly because if Jesus didn't matter, why are there so many people so up in arms about him? When you talk about Jesus, people get really up in arms who are against him and stumbling over him, right? If it doesn't matter, why is there such a big deal about Jesus? You can talk about a lot of religions, a lot of things, but the moment you mention Jesus, then you'll experience persecution, right? You'll experience what it's like to be an outcast at times. Why is that? Because Christ, in Christ, we are called to two ways to live, to two kingdoms. There is no neutral ground in Christ. Because of who Christ is, he's come. He calls us out of darkness into light. And there are those who reject it. But there's no neutral ground. We either love Jesus or we don't. 
He's either precious and a treasure to us or we are stumbling over him. And so Peter is saying to them, in fact, they stumble, he says, because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. There are those who obey God's word in the kingdom of light. And there are those who, re- who reject Christ and they reject him because they disobey his word. They don't believe that this is really any authority whatsoever, right? They believe that in our world that they're the authority. Maybe even some of you here this morning, you might believe that you're the one who's in charge, right? Any of you have that struggle? Let me disobey the word. And so Peter, I think encouraging them in the midst of suffering to trust in God's promises, to cling to the promises of God, to remember who they are. And I encourage you this morning, the same words, may the same way in which they would have received it, I pray that it will land on you because you too are living in a world that is hostile to the gospel, hostile to Christ. We live in a place that is not receptive to the message of Christ. And I pray that we too will be encouraged and even emboldened by the reality of who we are in Christ that we are chosen and precious, that just as Christ was rejected, we too are rejected, but in God's eyes, through Christ, we are precious, we are chosen, we are his children, we are a people of his own possession, we belong to him, so be encouraged. Let everyone know that, right? Share that, that's good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this word from Peter, that in the midst of uh, what seems like at times that we live truly as Christians in, in very much as a few in the midst of a whole culture that, that is rejecting Christ. God, help us to be encouraged. Help us to know and believe and trust in your word, to know who we are in Christ, and to, and to be those, God, who would proclaim passionately, faithfully, the excellencies of of him, of Christ, who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And God, we do pray for our neighbors, our friends, our family members, our coworkers. We pray, God, for you to open their hearts and their minds to see the truth of this gospel, to see this good news that we know. And we pray this in your name. Amen.